I think his voice sounds great on it. And, um, you know, one other thing about it is that, like, as much as people bellyache about, oh, he's, like, such a monster, he's, uh, he's, he's uh, pointing out all these uh, anti-science conspiracy theories, like, on that record, if you listen to it with, like, just this open mind and you're listening <laughs> he really does not say anything yeah. it's not like he's saying anything at all no he's like it's so really vague. just him being a curmudgeon again it's just exactly him, like being contrarian and that's why like van morrison to me will always be more acceptable than eric clapton i think eric clapton is a hack and he's more he's much more pedantic van morrison is just like eh, i'm just like irritated with people telling me what to do and van morrison is also like a musical genius so I think Van's can... biggest crime is harboring Clapton during this time, you know. Giving... <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that, exactly. That's really he's he's giving Clapton a a clap form. We got a D clap form. Him D clap. We, Very good. Can we do like an episode of uh, what would it be like? Uh, Van Morrison men. Uh, it would pro- podcast. Didn't we have a name for uh, what? Wait, Joker Joker Van. Joker Van. Yeah, yeah. Joker. Van. We should do like a Joker Van side project. And just delve into that album because, like, I we, we did honestly, do an episode like, all about that record. We did. Oh, you did. It was oh, on the. Okay. It was a. Was that a Patreon <laughs> one or I forget? Uh, one of them was free, and then the the second half of it was on Patreon because we baited you in with the great conversation. Thank God for the blues there on the front, and then you had to come back. <laughs> it, for it is on the funny media. to me that like the, that's the closest we've come to doing like a um, kind of hard sell. Like you know, you got to join the Patreon if you want to hear us talk about <laughs> this. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's why I love your pod. That's why I love this pod. And uh, you know, well, maybe I'll maybe I'll set you guys as a as a source when I write my think piece about this because because this is a think piece that I'm planning to write before the end of the year about like where it's not a full fledged defense of that album, but like just me saying like I kind of like this album and I, and I think you know like because we're all doing fans, I think the thing like the appeal of that record is that. Um, no one likes it in the moment, but you feel like maybe in like 10 years, people are right. going to regard this as a great record. Absolutely. Which is a very Dylan fan record. It's like a very Dylan fan perspective. Yeah, you got to have the right record. mindset to be able to appreciate that record yeah. in the moment. Well, Stephen, uh, I'm going to just jump right in here and say, because that's too good of a, a transition into what we're about to talk about for me not to point this out uh are we recording it's yeah no we're recording and this this, this this could all be this could all be in the episode that's that's right this is the show this is evan uh ian is also this is ian and we're joined again by stephen hyden and yes uh, today we're talking about uh van morrison a little bit here uh but we're leading in to a, a bigger discussion a much bigger uh box set size discussion about the new bootleg series, volume 16, springtime in New York, uh, a collection full of music that like Steven just said, might not have been appreciated, uh, in its time. It might not have been appreciated 20 years after it came out, but I think now that we're about what, 40 like, years on <laughs> 40 years on, that's when people start to go, you know what? Maybe it is kind of good. I don't know. It was good all along. <laughs> exactly. Doesn't it seem like it was good all along and people just missed the boat? I or think maybe, that, yes, or, it does or, seem like that. Or Bob didn't package it in the right way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, 
should we just dive into the neighborhood bully conversation right away? Well, we I could, feel we like could. we could do that. I feel like I that's feel what like that's what everyone's here for is the neighborhood. Bully. We're just a whole hour of this podcast is going to be neighborhood bully, and the rest of it is the other fifty. I'm pulling songs. out a pocket watch to like do an old style like timer on this. You know, we can do. I feel like five I've minutes. been like like in the Rocky movies, like when Rocky is like pulling boulders up the hill, getting like ready to box Ivan Drago. Yes, I feel like that's been me getting ready to make a defensive defend neighborhood 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 all right let's hear it well because ian you you're you're like explicitly against i'm I'm anti-neighborhood bully exactly and let me just clarify that you know the the subject matter i know that's something that a lot of people focus in on and i think that it sucks uh, on that matter but all apart from that i think the music also is bad (laughs) I would like to say for my piece here, I think that it's a uh, a song that is not a great song. I don't hate the song musically, but um, and I recognize that it's kind of problematic when viewed as sort of a Zionist propaganda piece. However, I do feel uh, that it's really all about Dylan trying to his heart's in the right place. You know, he thinks of this scenario, whatever it is, as an underdog trying to nobly defend itself from overwhelming odds. And uh, the fact that he's basically wrong on a geopolitical level, uh, uh, <laughs> do we re- do I really want to get into that? I don't know. I'm just imagining Bob is like a politician that Bob has to defend this. Like, like if Bob was like president of the world, and he has to defend the, the position that he took, a neighborhood bully. Right, 40 years ago. There's a reporter like ago. giving him shit about this from his deep, dark past. It's like, don't you feel like this is problematic? So, <laughs> so yeah. So, because I follow your Twitter feed. I love your Twitter feed, by the way. Thank you. Love, Thank you. I love what you guys do. Um, this is a great show. Um, but I just want to say, like, okay, so this is my thing with neighborhood bully. Um I was actually thinking about the song in the same context of, as uh, Precious Angel okay, from Slow Train Coming. Great song. You, were, you say it's a great song, but like that's a song where Bob basically says that like if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. He's like laying it out there. And, and, and I really believe that like, you know, we can all debate about like whether Bob really believes what he says in his lyrics or if it's like a pose or, you know, he's like wearing a mask or something. It's like some sort of persona that he's wearing. I really believe like in 1978, Slow Train Coming, he probably really did believe that like, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, you are going to hell. Yeah, absolutely. He wrote that song, but it's a beautiful song. And like, I feel like when I listen to that song, I can set aside the lyrics and just appreciate the music of it. Mm -hmm. Because... Uh, this is like one of the only periods of Bob Dylan where I really do this. It's like maybe 78 to 83 or so where I don't really care like what the lyrics are. I just like the music and like what he said, uh, you know, like the, 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 the way it the feeling he's, exactly. he's the, undeniably the, the, passionate in that period, but, and he's like writing great melodies at this time too. Yeah, That's such a great so, guitar line. It's a beautiful song, and I feel like with Neighborhood Bully, it's not as great of a melody as Precious Angel, but can't you make the same concession to 
to neighborhood bully as you would to precious angel well, like where you're not literally feeling like we i love this song so i think like all non-believers in jesus are going to go to hell right because i love this song you would never say that well, i think that's what my same, my uh, point i just i've grown to come more towards this point the one i just said of like i can now kind of look at it as i think dylan was trying to make a statement about um fairness really he was just whether or not he read too much into or was like very well read or uh up to date on the politics that he was kind of referencing it uh it seems like and we'll talk about this later i'm sure infidels you get this picture on this uh, on this collection of infidels as a kind of a a political record. There's a lot of political songs, political references all over it, and so in that context, I think yeah, it makes a little bit more sense as um, something where he's using politics as a as a jumping off point for something uh, all over this thing. And to, right, in that but pers- I think Stephen's saying, like, you know, even setting aside whether or not you buy into the politics, like, can't you appreciate? But that's the what I'm saying. I, I don't sake. necessarily take the politics so seriously anymore. I think of them as like this is a creative uh, uh, spark that that Dylan is kind of letting himself explore. Right. Right. Or like, or like, we're like 40 years removed from it. Can right. We just appreciate this as like a period in his career. Right. Where. Yeah. He was into this for a period of time, and it's sort of interesting that, you know, like like five years period, he's like super Christian, and now he's like super Jewish. Yeah, right. like five years later, so he has that right. quote, like saying, "Like I went to Israel, and everyone thought I was a Zionist," which kind of like fixed things for a little bit. It like made things. It was like anything was better than being like the king of anarchy or whatever. I think he right. said. I mean, that. I, we talked about this like the last time I was on your show. And I think it's really like an interesting thing with, with, with Dylan, especially like with eighties Dylan, like where like eighties Dylan for a long time was just regarded as this like very like down period for him. And I think this box set really dispels that because yes. And we'll, and we'll get into this. I mean, I think infidels especially was like, I'm just going to throw this out there. It seems like the last great songwriting boom of his career not like not that he didn't write great songs after this but like in terms of like, of like a boom yeah of like so it was a really creative period just like a yeah, vo- exactly. like volume wise just like, yeah just just producing like a ton of songs and sure that uh yeah i mean you, and, you just look through the track list and it's like outtake from infidels outtake from infidels outtake from infidels it's like he yeah, really had a lot that could have infidels could have been a lot of different things yes and in Again, like the last time I was on, like I put Infidels, I think in my number, like number twelve, like on my list of doing pretty like, high favorite Dylan records. Yeah, you did, and like you go, uh, we argued about that, and I think like for me, I I maybe overrated it a bit because uh, of all of the material I knew that didn't get on the record, mm-hmm. right? And we could talk about that in this episode because I think the dream version of infidels is like one of the great Bob Dylan records yes. of all times. That's completely right. Yeah. And I think that's why and we were kind of like anti, like not anti the, that take, but like, like for me at least, like I, I, I grade infidels down because of how much great shit there was at this era that didn't actually make it onto the finished package in 1983. Like this, this should have been the great 
uh, record of the 80s for Bob. I, it's a double LP as far as I'm concerned. It's a 16-song record yeah. uh, with two distinct discs. I've even got a whole breakdown that, that we can get into later. But uh, just, you know, what the the actual product that we've lived with for the last 40 years is so compromised compared to everything that we get on this set, you know, stuff that we even started to see on the first bootleg series. Um, but just this expand, like there's like 25 songs from the, the from those sessions on this uh, set. And it's just like a, it's a completely different thing. I think if you, if you really put it all together, we, we won't get into this because it would be too much, but there's an episode we just recorded, but uh, that where we kind of, we went through um, another self-portrait and sort of reassessed New Morning based on the similar experience of going through what all these outtakes and different versions and seeing like, well, what could that, that record have been like? Right. Right. Another set that was designed to like change people's minds about a like kind of weird period in Bob's history, just like Springtime in New York. Definitely is. had a real interesting change of perspective on self-portrait which is that it seems like a record that really could have been a lot more tender and charming and decided kind of not to, to keep the listener at a arm's length. And New Morning was not a record that we felt really has a compelling alternate version. But... Um, well, yeah, and look, I love that era. I mean, I love New Morning. Respect, you know. So, so you're saying that, but I mean... Not as, or at least it's not as dramatic as what you're talking about here, where on this record... Um, on this collection, rather, the version that you get in your mind, the, in the Mind Palace version of Infidels, and honestly, the alternate reality of uh, Shot of Love, even, it's like so wildly different and so much more um, interesting than sure. maybe anything else we've seen in the bootleg series. Right. I think like the only point I want to make was, you know, talking about, and I think we talked about the, the last time I was on the show, like, the idea of like a bad Bob Dylan album, right. like where you would say like, well, this is a bad Bob Dylan album. And I've really realized like with, with Dylan, that bad is not a concept that like, I think is particularly relevant Yeah, because I yeah. think like, you know, and I don't want to say that like people don't have the right to like judge something as being good or bad, but I think like with Dylan, if you say something's bad, it, it sort of implies that like, this is something that should be put, in a cupboard or in a trash bin yeah you don't need to listen to it and you can just put it away i really feel like with dylan there's so many things that have been just have been dismissed as bad that uh actually are really interesting right and once you dig into it even if you're like well it's not as good as something else it's uh still something worth listening to absolutely and and exploring and and maybe we will actually eventually discover is something you really love. Well, I, and, I noticed something about myself, which is that when I'm getting upset about a record and saying, Oh, it's not, it's actually shitty. I'm just upset that other Dylan fans say it's better than one I think is better. Like it, I'm just <laughs> mad at other Dylan uh, files. I'm not just really other ranking other subjective rankings of Bob's material that don't align with yours. I feel like that's a, that's a th- great thing about your show is that you're, you're basically saying I'm never mad at Dylan. Gonna... I never think he's bad. You know, I'm just, <laughs> but you're, you're like, we're not going to talk, talk about anything pre blonde on blonde. We're going to talk about, post blonde on blonde yeah the things yeah, that it's... maybe people dismiss as being bad but actually are much better than you would think yep. and that's why i think this box set is like one of the great bootleg series releases that totally. come yeah, out definitely 
because it's amazing how consistently great this box set is. There's so many good things. Although I will say that, um, and maybe we'll get into this if, like, when we start talking about individual albums or whatever, there, there are individual cuts where I'm like, it, it actually made me appreciate the albums as they were released because some of the cuts I don't think are better yeah, than like yeah. on the records. But, you know, and I think, again, Infidels is the big record you want to talk about because there are, I think, if you take like three songs off of Infidels and replace them with like three or four songs that you hear on this box, box set, mm-hmm. it is like one of the great, yeah, of all yeah. Time, yes. I think. Well, I think probably with that, yeah. Yeah, we should probably actually <laughs> formally start the show. Uh before we do, Stephen, you did mention uh before we started recording, you wanted to air some grievances about the just announced return to live show performance by Bob Dylan coming up shortly. Well, I mean, my only complaint to Bob because okay, his first so show's Bob, in Milwaukee. That's that's right in your backyard, isn't it? America's it is. Heartland. He's playing at the Riverside Theater in Milwaukee, which is a very uh, important venue to me. Personally, I, I, I lived in Milwaukee for eight years. I've been to many shows at the Riverside Theater. But he's playing on my daughter's fifth birthday. Uh-huh. So I can't make it. And I feel like, Bob, you could have booked a show one day earlier in the North Country mm-hmm. in Minneapolis, where I live, Yep, November 1st. I could have popped over to, you know, one of the many beautiful theaters that we have here in Minneapolis. Um, and it would have been great. Uh, Stephen, I, I don't understand why you can't just, uh, what, what is it? Why, why can't you, you know, you just say your daughter, you say your daughter, Whoa. you're going to, five isn't that big a deal. You know, it's big. Well, seven, exactly. It's six, like, 10. Even. I, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> it's one of those things where it forces me to like counterbalance of like, Bob is 80 years old. Yeah, My daughter is five years old. That's right. a good point. Um, you know, <laughs> Statistically, who's got those... more birthdays left? <laughs> Come on. I mean, you know, I'm not ruling it out going to Chicago yet. Like he's in November, November 3rd in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, my good friend uh, Rob Mitchum, who I do yes, uh, thirty six from, from the vault. vault. I'm very excited for your new uh, one off thirty six from the vault episode about seeing. Oh yeah, covering the uh, the Wrigley show, right? Thrilled, yeah, thrilled yeah. to hear thank, that. Thank you for that plug. Um, I haven't talked to Rob about that. It's like on a Wednesday, though. I don't know. It 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 it's so tough. I mean, like I assume that he will be coming this way in like 2022. But, the tour is uh, going for like five years. They announced, so like I, I think, think you're gonna yeah, get three years, twenty one to twenty four. I, mean, I, I are you guys in New York? Are you gonna go to those Beacon shows? Well, so that's it. Evan is in New York. I'm gonna fly from San Francisco, where I am now, to New York on oh, Friday man. night. Go to the Beacon show with Evan on Saturday, and then immediately fly back home on Sunday. And I, oh, I may actually, if I can, I may go to two of the Beacon shows, and possibly, if if uh, the stars align, one of the Port Chester shows. Oh man, Port Chester! It, Port Chester. I mean, I love the Beacon Theater. I, I've been beautiful there. venue. Beautiful venue. Port Chester. I've never been. Me to. neither. I've, I've be... never been, and so I, I don't know. I feel like. This is one of those times where it's like right, it's also right around my birthday, and I just feel like uh, you know. Why do like why the not? East Coasters always get like so many shows? You I feel have, like you have like six 
New York shows. I think he's playing in Philly, like two shows. It's like Bob is from the Midwest. Play like a Minneapolis show before this Milwaukee show. I couldn't man. agree you with you. Think. think, yeah. The North Country. Right. Yeah, man. From the song. From the exactly. from the great music. Yeah, or from the from the great musical. Uh, oh, I, girl from I'm North. actually yeah. I <laughs> I'm going to see that on October too. 24th. <laughs> I am going to see the uh, Bob Dylan uh, musical uh, as, uh, 3 p.m. Sunday matinee, and my girlfriend That's is yeah. being dragged along. Um, and we will see. Going to be just as good as the Bob concerts themselves. Exactly. Yeah, just as good. I've always felt like I want to hear Bob songs sung in like a sh- like a show tune voice. That's oh, what has been missing. All I just along. I just I don't like the show tune voice ever because I mean the modern show. I like old show tunes where it's like you know kind of has this uh, unself aware just like belting, but the new show tunes. It sounds like uh, it's like the same effect as watching a bad TikTok video to me. Do you think Bob has ever seen? He did, I think. I think he saw it. According to him, he he has seen it and he cried at the show, apparently. No kidding. That's what he says. Did he cry? I feel like you're making that up. No, he he said that. He said that it was very touching to see all of his songs performed on stage like this and it brought a tear to his eye. I don't know. Fact check that. I was going to say, I I just got. the Stephen Van Zandt autobiography. I don't know if oh, you've heard yes, about this. Yeah. No. Oh, is and this where Bob, the menage a trois quote that was on Twitter yeah, exactly. today comes from? <laughs> okay. Where, yeah, like Stephen Van Zandt so talking cool. about having threesomes with me. Like Bob blurbed that book. Yeah. Bob blurbed it? Yeah, he blurbed it. Whoa. Like, like how do you get a Bob Dylan blurb Damn. on your book? Well, you're little and, Stephen. That's how. I, I guess, but like, I wonder like what the whole, uh, you know, situation was with like approaching i guess he's yeah, going to jump he's rope. probably just aware I mean, of I, this stuff uh, this is bob paying him back for getting him into the studio and recording at least three versions of when, when the, the night, night comes, comes falling from the sky and guess. not actually releasing any of them well that's funny bringing up in the in the context of this box set because i feel like the uh the bootleg you know like the one through three version the original yeah the original one is like the best one yeah like it's I'm with better you. than but I, I feel like Jeff Rosen probably wrote that blurb. Yeah. Uh, for <laughs> Stephen Mantha's <laughs> book. I mean, there's no way. Bike, what is the blurb? What does it say? Um, should, I, should I Google this quick? I guess. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Talking about time. It. Yeah. Let's, let's go for it. All right, I'm going to go to Amazon. I think he, I mean, because it seemed like way too effusive for Bob. I don't know. He, he sometimes. He doesn't really effusive. seem like the blurbing kind of guy. Exactly. Know? For an old I friend. Mean, I'll blur- I guess for an old friend. I'll blurb yeah. an, I'll blurb an old friend. Do you think like him and Van Zandt are hanging out enough to like? Probably not, it? but maybe it's one of these weird things where suddenly Dylan will just be like very kind out of nowhere. <laughs> these th- these things um, happen. All right, hold on a sec. I'm Standing scrolling by. down. I'm scrolling down the uh, Amazon page. <laughs> Great title on this book: Unrequited Infatuations, a memoir. Um. And it, and yes, he says I, he was addicted to having threesomes, <laughs> addicted exactly. to being cool. I was wondering if that was like sort of a like sly way of saying that he experimented with his sexuality, like of like being gay. He's like I, oh yeah, like I was really into threesomes. Just saying that, <laughs> it's like okay. I'm sure that he uh, that he gets into it. Three people. I'm not going to say Here what it is. kind. 
Okay, this is what Bob says, apparently, about Stephen Vanson's book. This indeed is a cautionary tale filled with outrageous humor, worldly wisdom, and a canny sense of daring. No doubt about it, Stevie proves it time and again. He's the man to know. Bob Dylan. No, that sounds no right. way he wrote no that. No way he, he wrote that. That's a no joke. He, he didn't not. write that. Of that's, course he wrote that. that do you think, do you think uh, Bob yeah, was like, yeah, you, oh, this is this is a cautionary tale? Have you uh, read that? I mean, the way it's written, it's like, indeed, this like that's not something people would write. That's not <laughs> indeed. It's a cautionary tale. Like, OK, that's a, of course, that's Bob Dylan. That's so funny. He proves once again that he's the man to know. Like that is said in a way that most people you can repeat that just like uh that's not some PR person. Uh, well, I'm a truther on this. I think it's Bob. Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, let's set that one. Let's table that for a moment, and uh, and we've got we've got a long one to get to. So let's. Uh, and we haven't even started yet. No. We've been talking for like a and half we hour. haven't even yeah, started yet. <laughs> nah, yeah, good one. Uh, all right. Well, so we're gonna we're gonna try to give this some little bit of framework here to keep ourselves sane and to also prevent from going for 19 hours on this, which we which we could. Uh, so we're gonna tackle this. We're gonna tackle the whole thing. The the big the big five disc, you know, ultra set. Um, so listeners at home, hopefully you've uh, given all that a spin at some point. Uh, and it, we're gonna sort of think of it in four main parts because it really is kind of four mini sections that make up the whole thing. And the four parts are gonna be the rundown rehearsals at the beginning. And then the three records outtakes, the Shot of Love outtakes, the Infidels outtakes, and the, Empire, uh, Burlesque. And the Empire Burlesque part outtakes. And I think the record outtakes, really, Infidels and Shot of Love are really kind of the meat of the set. So that's probably where we're going to spend a lot of our uh, focus. But we'll just start right off the bat with a little bit of this uh, this rundown stuff here at the beginning. So we all uh, we all gave those songs a listen. Do we have any... Yeah, I don't think we really need to go through each and every one of these songs because they are really just like covers and rehearsals, but uh, I'm sure we all have a couple, uh, a couple favorites. Stephen, you got you know two or three uh, like kind of standouts from this first set of I guess mostly not Bob songs that he's playing here, but there are a couple uh, Bob originals here. Yeah, I mean, and you know, at the risk of uh, you know picking out a scab on this show, Uh-oh. that one of the things I really love about this uh, about these rehearsals is that it evokes the basement tapes to me. <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah. and, and and then the same, you know, or the basement tapes are like the self-portrait sessions. Like sure. you feel like Bob is just throwing out songs. It's very casual. And you feel like you're getting uh, an inside view of his taste and the breadth of his taste. And uh, like just songs that he likes that he wants to play. Totally. Um, which is uh, really great. Um, I mean, Need a Woman, I think is really great. Mm-hmm on this on this on this disc um i think that made it on to the two disc set it did yes one of the um, few most of these were i think most of these like are were really kind of cut off the two disc set but need a woman and uh i think um let's keep it between us i think are like the two that made it onto the the main one that's like available on streaming yeah i, I mean i'll just say too that i love the two dylan tracks that are at the start of the of this disc, which is uh, senior mm. to, yeah, I think Ramona. we should just yeah. speak for a moment on uh, senior being the first thing you hear here. It's kind of interesting. I did not expect that. Great choice. Well, and can I just say too that um, 
I feel like street legal is in some ways like in it's not a part of this box set, but um, I feel like in some ways it's recontextualized because of this box set. Yeah, and well, someday there will probably be a street legal uh, bootleg of their of its own. And I think you're making an important distinction here where it's like, you don't get any of that, but the fact that it starts with senior seems to imply that uh, street legal was like kind of a creative uh, resurgence that sort of maybe spearheaded some of this um, incredible, incredibly prolific period. Right. Yeah. Because I think street legal, it's a record that kind of hangs out in limbo because it's not part of the Christian period it's not part of the Rolling Thunder period, but it is this, again, very lyrically ambitious and also musically accessible period. Like, you know, it was him making very melodic music. And I think that's also true of like a lot of the music on this box set where um, he's uh, not tied to the Christian theology that he had been tied to in the previous years, but uh I think at its best, he was really being ambitious lyrically, but also writing really melodic music. And I think that's what really strikes me about this box set is like how much, like how melodic a lot of this music is and how catchy and uh, engaging it is. Totally. Um, and, uh, you know, I in a way that I think is even more engaging than the albums as they were, were released because it's like a little, it's not quite as tied to the era from a production standpoint as the original albums were. Like these recordings seem like, I don't know, like a little more raw or a little They don't sound as, they don't have all the like like heavy production elements on them and stuff. They sound a little more timeless. Well, that's that's a really amazing thing about the uh, takeaway from the entire collection uh, is that when you think about the eighties and when you think about Dylan in the eighties, but really just the eighties in general, you have all these preconceived notions. Most people in the public imagination anyway, have ideas about what that sounds like and the, uh, you know, over the top production and like the, the beginnings of all these, like the gated drums and the heavy reliance on synths and all that. And, uh, I think a lot of people who are really bigger music heads know that the eighties really wasn't, all that because you know a lot of independent music in the 80s sounds like it could have been from the 70s or the 60s in production wise and on this uh, collection you kind of get that uh, sense of timeless uh, it doesn't sound like necessarily it's from the 1980s it kind of right. just floats around as music um, it doesn't have that signature sound that we all like kind of enjoy or laugh at that we associate with that decade. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, stuff that's like, or a lot of, I think commentary out there that's like, even to like, honestly to Joker man, the song people will sometimes be like, yeah, I love Joker man, but man, I wish it didn't sound like that. And I think, you know, part of uh, what we've advocated for on this podcast is that the version of Joker man on infidels is the version of Joker man. That's the perfect version. It should sound like that. Right. But a lot of the material on this set the you know the Joker Man alt take in uh, you know uh, in particular 
uh, is is really meant to sort of cater to those people who like want to appreciate these songs for the songwriting and you know the craft that is inherent in them, but can't get past that really kind of um, very specific moment in time sound that a lot of this stuff has. Yeah, and, and I think this is part of the and look, there's so much, so many level, levels of perversity with Bob Dylan, but you know he was working with like Chuck Plotkin and Toby. Uh, um oh toby i can't remember his last name keith. toby no toby keith uh <laughs> like bruce springsteen's uh engineer got it uh i'm, I'm blanking on it but anyway like w- around the time of shout of love he was working like with a lot of the same personnel as like bruce springsteen toby but scott then, like toby scott thank you and he would shelve a lot of the material because he felt like it sounded too much like bruce springsteen mm. and uh and then it ends up getting revived on this box set. He really, like Bob really does sound like a contemporary of like Springsteen and Tom Petty yep. and a lot of the Heartland rockers of the 80s. And it almost seems like he was like artificially making himself not sound like that on his on the albums they'd actually put out. Listen to something like uh like Infidel or like Empire Burlesque, anything from this era, and you're kind of like, well, like that's a weird choice. Like weird choice after weird choice. It maybe does make a lot of more sense when you think about like the left turns he seems to constantly be making as um, protective measures not to be compared to the young gun who's like coming for his seat. Yeah, exactly. He wants to do something else so it's different enough that he's not going to be unfavorably compared to somebody younger, stronger and like more attractive you don't you don't think empire burlesque can stand up to born in the usa apparently the man himself the boss thought it did and bob's own modern work has gone unjustly underappreciated if there was a young guy out there writing sweetheart like you writing the empire burlesque album writing every grain of sand they'd be calling him the new bob dylan yeah to me that's like one of the interesting subtexts of like this era for him that he didn't want to be compared to those you know compared to like the young turks who were obviously influenced by him right but he was also using some of the same production people as them and really when you listen to the songs that he was producing at this time when uh he was using the same people and he was like producing like really good songs that like could have been with them but like he's there was like something in him like like i don't i i I wonder on some level if it's pride or insecurity it's like some weird mixture of the two it kind of does seem to explain or give some uh some kind of a format for thinking about these songs if you think of it that way some of the more baffling ones anyway perhaps um but uh Ian, do you have some favorites from like the first chunk of these songs? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, like, I think what are, what are the ones that jumped out at yeah, you? Yeah, Senor and Ramona, I think are both great. Those are a couple. I actually like this version of Sen- this version of Senor. It just comes through more for me than the Street Legal Cut for That's whatever weird. reason. Um, yeah. this one he, feels, he like flubs the lyrics a lot. It, this one but, just feels uh, warmer and like kind of more lively than the Street Legal Cut. Um, I'll take any anything that'll get you to see that Senor is a really <laughs> hey, good song. Senor, thumbs up for me. Street Legal, everything on Street right. Legal, thumbs up. Um, th- uh, let's keep it between us though. I think is is maybe one of my favorites here, which I didn't realize is a Bob song. Like that's a Bob original, 
that ended up being recorded by Bonnie Raitt right after this. Oh. Um, and this is like the, the, and Bob, I think, was playing it live on the 8081 shows, like, you know, at the post-Christian shows um, when, he, when he started to do his own uh, original material again. Um, but, um, just the way that song sounds and like, it's, it's so like kind of quiet and laid back and there's this beautiful kind of flowing guitar. Um, you know, I, I'm glad that there's like finally a nice kind of, um, put together, you know, listenable version of this. Cause that, that really seems like a song that should have made it onto some sort of record somewhere, maybe shot of love, maybe, you know, obviously it probably wasn't written at the street legal time, but feels like it could have come on that record, you know, kind of is in that mode. Same with We Just Disagree. That's another one that's sort of a similar sort of like romantic uh, parsing of differences. Um, Is that like a Dave Mason song? I think that's a... Is it a cover? You Just Disagree? That's a cover, I think. That one is a cover, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's a cover. I've got the whole... Yeah, you're right, Stephen. Uh, Dave, uh, Dave Mason, uh, yeah. heartfelt, yeah, uh, heartfelt. Sweet yeah. Caroline, yeah. is that a? Co- yeah, that's Sweet Caroline. That that could have been hit by somebody. I don't know why the yeah. Bob didn't. That one's uh, so put that on a record. That one is so weird. I I, I, I like I that really one. like it. Yeah, uh, I love it too. I mean, and again, like I think. He doesn't do the ba ba ba, but like uh, he makes it compelling nonetheless. Yeah, that that, that reminds me of like those, um, I guess like the nineteen seventy set that came out, like where you know, like that uh, copyright dump. That, right. I, I think that was last yes. year. We haven't uh, gotten to that yet. Oh, that, that's great. You know, like where he's just it just feels like he's throwing out a song that he likes. And uh, they're running through it. Yeah, there's and, a good uh, uh, version of, well, good version of Yesterday on there. That it's just, it's right. fun to hear Bob doing Yesterday. Yeah. I, oh, it's fall- This is also followed Sweet Caroline right, uh, on, it comes right before Fever. So it's like, yeah. Fever and like Abraham, Martin there. and John, like the Dion song. Like mm-hmm. I love, I just love getting a look into Bob's brain where it's like these random songs. Like, oh yeah, he appreciates this Dion protest song from the late well, 60s. Uh, you ever listen to uh, Theme Time Radio Hour? Because, like, oh, that, yeah, it's right. like, it's just endless that, you know? It's like, that's what's so great about it is, like, you realize that, like, he, he doesn't have, like, uh, his music taste is not always, like, what what you'd think. It's it's kind of all over the place, and he he really appreciates a simple, straightforward song. Exactly. He just loves, he loves songs for, like, uh, their attitude more than he loves them for anything else. It seems he likes just unpretentious fun music. Well, like, have you guys ever heard the, um, the rehearsal tapes of like the, uh, Dylan and the dead. Like, uh, I haven't, there's like a, there's like a multi-disc bootleg of them just like running through songs, like where they'll do like the boy in the bubble by, Paul Simon wow. and, cool. and, and like Buddy Holly songs. This was for like, w- like warmups for the tour in 87, yeah. 88. Yeah. Like where the tour was terrible, but like the rehearsals like were great. Wow. That's another, that's the, a re- that, the record is terrible. There's a couple good performances. There are. And, and, and when I say terrible and again, like I, I'll go back. I, I think I was starting to say this earlier that like that Bob, that, that bad Bob Dylan album, like, like, like bad, is not a paradigm that I'm interested in with Bob Dylan anymore because right. there's so many things that I've dismissed in my own fandom as being bad. And then I went back and I loved them. 
um, and like Dylan and the Dead is a record that like I've, as as a critic does this not just like rewire your brain or you're not like well, having trouble just like parsing that you feel this well way? it's interesting because in most instances your job as a critic is to give like the hot or not verdict right. on a record but I think with Bob Dylan and there's other artists like this too I'd probably say like you know like Miles Davis is like this there's like other artists who have just such vast discographies uh, and, and the artists are clearly geniuses uh, where like bad, I think becomes an irrelevant concept. And you're like, there's nothing mm-hmm. in this catalog that I would dismiss as bad because right. this person's a genius. And yeah, there's things that I like more than others, but there's nothing that I would put in the bad bin where I don't care about it. And with, with Bob, it's like, the minute you think that he's out of the game, he'll just turn around and do something again that is as brilliant as anything he's ever done. Or even done. if it's not as good as something else, it's so interesting, sure. you know? Because I think like a, lot, like a lot of people, their bad stuff is like not even interesting. It's boring. And you want to just right. Bob is never boring to me. And maybe he's boring to other people, but to me, he's not boring ever. He has boring material, but it, it, as we see on a collection like this, it's just mixed in with so many things that are really exciting. Let's pick the worst song on this box set, which is probably Julius and Ethel. Whoa, you know? whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Was, whoa. Worst no, but, song. But hold on. I'm just saying, let's, you know, because I was reading The Dark Prince, uh, Mr. Uh, Clinton Halen. And he and, uh, <laughs> we'll call him the Dark Prince, and he uh, called this like a piece of crap and like the worst song that Bob Do- Bob's ever written, or whatever. But I'm like, uh, I'm still, I still find this song compelling. I I, I still like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's still like I would never say it's a great song, but I still want to listen to it, and then like kind of figure out. Like what was he thinking when he did this? Where was his head at? Yeah, that it's so funny you say that because I was that was like maybe the last song I was listening to before we started recording here tonight. <laughs> like I was I was walking on the street listening to that, and I was just like like mouthing the words along as I was passing people with my AirPods in, looking like an absolute Ugh. psycho. It's just, that song fucking rocks. Uh, it clean, rocks. I, I know. I I totally enjoy it. Yes, clean cut kid, uh, maybe not, but Julius and Ethel. <laughs> Absolutely. Come on, killer. Clean Cut well, like, Kid is way worse than Julius and Ethel. Wait, wait, wait. Julius and Ethel, it's like it comes from a place where it's like not only is he basically right about like the the political aspect of it, which you know we could go into, or let's just not. But he, uh, it's a, uh, it's it's just better. I'll just say, uh, put my cards on the table. Julius and Ethel as a chorus, much funnier and more engaging than Clean Cut. Julius kid. and Ethel. Julius and Ethel. Like the, My favorite part is the one he goes, Julius and Ethel. Yeah, he loses <laughs> he, the like, he, I yeah. really like the uh, Infidels version of, of uh, Clean Cut Kid. I think that's like a pretty rocking groove. I, I like the music of it. He's Lyrically, I'm not going to defend it. But, <laughs> He's um, Burger King. Yeah. It's hilarious to me that, it, that Clean Cut Kid is on the same record as um, License to Kill. It's ridiculous. It's, it's not like, though. Because like, uh, Clean Cut Kid's on Empire Burlesque, right? It oh is, wait, yeah. wait! But right, I mean, was was written the infidels, in the same kind of It was of almost yeah. It, it is a that it, it is an the, infidel song. That's what I meant. But, yeah, but like that it, you, it, it's like in that same era because it's like License to Kill is like so much more. Like, it's the same idea basically, yeah. but said like much more poetically yeah. without actually just better. saying like. 
It's but like, Tinker Kid is like the Muppet Babies version of Full Metal Jacket. But like, I, I don't know which one of you were going after British Dylan fans. So both like, of us. That's both of us. Both of you. But I think you made a really great point about this idea that um, there's a certain kind of Dylan fan that can appreciate that Bob Dylan could write Desolation Row and then also could write like Wiggle Wiggle. Right. You know, that's yeah. like you have to somehow reconcile both parts yeah, of that or, in your or mind. They, or they have to like separate them into like almost like two different people or something. Whereas I think for me personally, the beauty of Bob Dylan and the genius of Bob Dylan is that he did write Desolation Row and that he did write Wiggle Wiggle. Absolutely. And right. I, Our point was that, that the British critic, it's somebody who has this very specific uh, idealized vision of Dylan in their mind that when he does something that anything that doesn't correspond to that specific image, they get right, mad. Yeah, they get riled up. Well, it's almost like a leg of, it's like a very like literary kind of textual. Absolutely. Image of him. And, and rather than looking at him as like a figure that um, is like a, like a perverse figure, but that he can do genius and he can be also really dumb. And which to me makes him so much more lovable, right? Because it, it makes him more it humanizes him, and it more also human, yeah. it makes him a more sort of like comic figure in a way, which I love. And it really kind of opens up, like if you're going to talk about his '80s period, it really I, I think if you have that perspective on him, it makes it easier to appreciate this period of of him because it really is a collision of like. I think true genius, like as much, like as well as he wrote in any other period, really. Um, and also like terrible taste, like he had terrible <laughs> taste in the eighties too. Um, but also like, like of, everyone did, exactly. everyone had kind of a stunted and weird taste in the eighties. Uh, the eighties was, a, it's what we know about that time. And we're going to look back at our time or we're actually, I think the more astute people now recognize that we are in a really stunted and kind of bad period for culture in a lot of ways right now. Oh, absolutely. And and also like with in Dylan's era, like how there was, you know, it was really unique to have a rock star to, you know, in his early 40s. Like he was still, you know, he was part of that generation that was still. Yeah, there was no, yeah, there was no template for how to age as a rock star. You're exactly right. He, he and, and the Stones basically and McCartney were kind of inventing that. Yeah, I was uh, at I saw I was at Woods's Fest the other day and I saw Yellow Tango playing and I just had this thought while I was watching them and they were so great and you could tell like every minute of their 30 plus years or 30 years of experience was like evident on that stage when they were doing this set. It was like next level indie rock music. It was like beyond that. It was something better. And I was just thinking like this band is they've been around for 30 years. They're still like in the history of rock music. Like they're world historical. Like they are one of the first bands to be doing the stuff they're doing. And right now they're one of the first bands with that level of experience to be continuing to do it. And it, it's interesting. I think it's important to consider rock music uh, as, as young, like think about how young it is and uh, just keep that in mind when you're looking at like who's good and who's not because everybody who's in the game now is is the first in some way at what they're doing. Dylan is the first 80-year-old rock star. Right. Yeah. 
And like Yola Tango, they didn't, you know, I mean, the thing with Dylan that I think is like so endearing in retrospect is that he did have these awkward years in the 80s yes. where he was kind of trying to figure out what to do. And I think the thing about this box set that is really, and, and you know this if you've already like heard bootlegs of this period and a lot of these songs have already bootlegged, but, um, you, you know, that he didn't really know like, how do I be a rock star at this time? Or how do we, how do we be a musician? He was inventing it. And he was inventing it. And it was like, cause we can say like, well, there's like more kind of raw stuff that we like on this box set, but he was trying to be contemporary at the time. And like Yola Tango didn't have to worry about that. You know, right. like they, they knew what the thing do. that they, everybody gets to stand on his shoulders yeah. and it's important to look at Dylan and as, as tempting as it might be to criticize these periods that seem fumbling or strange. It's uh, incredibly brave and ballsy that he didn't stop at all during this period. He was continuing to, without any precedent, forge ahead and make more music. And everybody else who got to watch that got to see, oh, well, that didn't work so well. And especially in the face of how like poorly received a lot of this music was at the time. Like Bob was used to being the darling of the entire world critically and commercially speaking for years and years and years. And like this is this is a whole new thing for him is people are just shitting on him like endlessly for this period of time. And he's he's still sticking with it. I mean, because I have to say that, you know, because I don't know if we're going to talk about infidels later and like how infidels might have changed if he had put some of the songs on this box set. Right. Or different versions. Mm -hmm. I mean, even even versions that aren't on this box set of songs that are on here, if you put that on infidels. But like infidels, I think, even as it is, is like a really good record. And I think Shout of Love is a really good record as yes. it is. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it's cer- certainly better than it was received at the time. And it almost makes you think like, even if Bob had put, let's say like, you know, spoil, you know, just to, cause I, I'm like talking about infidels. I'm, I'm assuming that we're all going to say that, Oh, we should have put Lord protect my child on there. We should, yep. we should yes. have put foot yeah. of pride on there. hundred percent. We should have put blind, blind Willie Mattel on there. Yep. I still feel like there would have been critics that would have said, Bob, you should hang it up. There's right. like, there's new wave groups <laughs> or, here. Or somebody would have said, Oh, he's, he's, leaning too much on his old type of style right. now why isn't he trying to do stuff that's more contemporary he sounds like a dinosaur like they would have probably found some way to criticize it yeah even blind if- willie mctell they probably would have been like oh he but meanwhile old man bob dylan is writing songs about a blues singer exactly like why don't you do something that sounds more like duran duran or right. sounds more like uh yes. you know boy george or something which you um, yourself have made that point before steven i think i forget in it, maybe it was twilight of the gods or something but you've you've made this point that like critics react against the critical environment in which they came up like that's kind of the thing behind like the optimism turn in the 2010s is a reaction against the like super uh, heady pitchfork indie phase of the early 2000s just like you know this next decade of criticism is going to be a reaction against the 2010s which might have you know kind of shifted too far in the direction of optimism in a lot of cases yeah i mean i think you know i mean dylan was only i mean now we say he was only uh you know, like 42, 43 years old. He was a spring chicken. A lot of this music, but yeah. like at the time, that was... A little boy. That was, you know, pretty old. Uh, it's so funny because like I am now the age of Bob Dylan 
when he was making a lot of this music. So like <laughs> maybe that's why I feel especially uh, close to Bob at this time. But um, you're in your union yeah. sundown phase. Exactly. I'm in my <laughs> well. I am the age of Bob when he made Empire Burlesque. So I'm in my <laughs> Empire <laughs> Burlesque uh, phase. You got your but, nice uh, uh, gray uh, sport coat and that weird kind of face that he makes with the exactly. shirt yeah, down shoulder the pads. Exactly. Yeah. I've got, yeah, I've got my sport coat like kind of bunched up to the, uh, the uh, elbows. The elbows. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean that's something I think interesting to consider, even if you consider like whatever you would say are the best case scenario examples of these albums, I still think that he probably would have been slagged, uh, you know, in, in some quarters just because he was like an old guy from the sixties still making records. An easy target. Exactly. For someone who, you know, was trying to just make a name for themselves or like, you know, be on kind of be on the cutting edge with the punk rock scene or the, the rap scene or with whatever was going on. This has been part one of three of Jokerman's Springtime in New York extravaganza featuring Stephen Hyden. Tune in next time for even more Jokerman. How it began I got no way of knowing All I know is Growing strong Was in the spring Springtime became summer How was I to know you'd come along in hand.